Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hello, and welcome to Episode 9 of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. Today, I am joined by Jenna Roselle and Jamie Carlson. Jamie, as you know, is a wild game cook and a regular contributor uh, on Modern Carnivore. And uh, we always love getting Jamie's perspectives on different things related to wild food. And Jenna is somebody that uh, that we connected with uh, this last year at the at the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers National Rendezvous in Boise, Idaho. And we just had a lot of fun talking with her about all things uh, wild and plants and mushrooms, etc. Jenna lives in the state of Maine, and she learned the value of wild plants as a young girl from her mother and has really carried that through into her lifestyle as an adult. She really makes a living by connecting with wild foraged items and sharing both that expertise and sometimes the bounty of the forest with with others. And uh, and so it's fun to hear her perspectives on on foraging. And she's also got an interesting story from the standpoint of she came to hunting as an adult. So for those of you who are considering the idea of hunting now, uh, I think she's yet one more example of somebody who came to this activity as an adult and it really saw how it connects to her passion for all things wild. So we talk about uh, foraging, which can be anything from mushrooms to plants and berries and more. Um, and I do want to caution you or just give you some guidance to make sure that you find a local expert before you head out into the wilds yourself to, uh, to forage for food. Make sure you understand what's edible, what is not just as important. Um, and especially when you look at things like mushrooms, which can be risky if you don't know what you're looking for. So in the show notes page, we will put a link to the club listing of the North American Mycological Association, which has at least one club in most states and provinces. And you can also find out on social media and other places, uh, people who have a connection within your local community oftentimes and are passionate foragers. Just make sure they know what they're doing. Um, and you can really uh, have your eyes open to a whole new, uh, whole new opportunity out in the wilderness. So enjoy today's discussion. Okay, I am joined today by Jenna Roselle. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes. Okay, and Jamie Carlson. And uh, we are in Boise, Idaho, and uh, just wanted to sit down for a few minutes and talk a little bit about foraging, hunting, and any other interesting things that are that are coming along. So uh, why don't we kick it off by, by Jenna, I want you to Maybe give us a little bit of background on where you're from, where you live, etc. Uh, currently, I'm living in Parsonsfield, Maine, which is about an hour due west of Portland. Okay. Um, I spent the majority of my life living in uh, the southern half of the state. And what do you call that? Down east? Or? No, down east is actually not down, as you would imagine. <laughs> 
uh, I did Homestead and Down East Maine, but that's actually um, like mid coast. You know, how Maine comes out to like a nose, and then comes back in. Yeah, Down East is right on the nose. Okay, okay. So that's kind of the middle of the state on the coast. And so that's different from where you're at now. Yep. Okay. Okay. Cool. So you homesteaded. You are you're off the grid, right? Yeah. Which is something unique, I think. Uh, not new, but yeah, not. No, people used common. to do it all the time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not by choice. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Exactly. So you grew up there, though, and tell us a little well, bit. Well, I grew up in, in southern Maine. southern Maine, but yeah. yeah, I've been in Maine for the majority of my life. I, I did a couple stints in New Hampshire and one in New York City, and they didn't little, last long. A little different, yeah. New York City. Not into it. How long? Mm, like four years. Well, that's a pretty good run. Yeah. I went to college there. Okay. Okay. Cool. You go back and visit? Uh, a handful of times. Yeah. But no. Yeah. I do like it to visit, but not to live. I can't afford it mostly is the problem. I think if I made more money, I might have liked it a whole lot more. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not that fun being poor in a city. It's a lot easier being poor in uh, in a rural environment. In the outstate areas. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? So you grew up, your uh, your mom was like a homeopath or Herbalist. something? Herbalist. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so as part of that, did you as a, as a kid forage? Yeah, that was my introduction to it. Okay. Okay. And what <clears throat> um, types of things would you forage? Um, well, I guess my two, the two clearest memories I have from childhood uh, like in that introductory phase with her, there was this one time, uh, I was standing on the porch. We had this big Rottweiler and I was throwing a stick for it and didn't realize that the dog was attached to a rope and the rope was wrapped around my leg. And so it went off the porch and took me with it. And so I had like this massive rope burn around my knee. And then my mom came out into the yard and she just picked a couple plantain leaves, common plantain leaves. And, um, sort of chewed them up yeah, and rolled them up into her hand, made a little poultice, put it on my rope burn and, you know, it worked. Wow. wow. Uh, so that was, I, I think that was my first memory of, uh, of like uh, realizing that plants had something to offer me. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, oh, these are useful. They're not just like here. Right. Um, and then I think other, uh, the other clear memory that I have is uh, my my great-grandparents uh, got a cottage on a beach in southern Maine. And um, the whole coast is covered in beach roses. And they get those big, fat rose hips yeah. late summer, early fall. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I remember eating those as a kid. I can't say I've ever eaten them. Really? What do they taste like? How did you prepare them? I just ate them off the bush. Really? Yeah. Seeds and all? No. No, no, not the seeds. You got to eat it like an apple. You know, you okay. got to treat the seeds like a core. Those seeds will really irritate your mouth. They're fuzzy. And yeah. Not They're good. terrible. Yeah, <laughs> they are. Does it, does it have any medicinal benefits that. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Full of vitamin C. Yeah. Uh, resveratrol. Um, bunch of other stuff that I'm probably not going to recall right now. Yeah. I should give a disclaimer, by the way, that my brain is functioning at like 10% right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I, I, you're getting like some um, uh, alter ego of myself right now. I'm. <laughs> we'll give you some slack. Thank you. Okay, I'll okay. take it. So, um, 
In Maine, obviously, uh, I, I think I saw recently some pictures you'd put out. Uh, you were maple syruping, maybe yeah. making some maple sugar, yeah. which my friend Jamie here uh, was recently showing me how he's been utilizing it for cooking, like anything that calls for sugar. Maple yes. sugar? Maple you sugar be- oh, is yeah? the only way to go these days. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know <laughs> that other people felt that way. Oh, no. Maple sugar, in all my cures, all my brines, everything, maple sugar is it. Uh, you can use brown sugar, but brown sugar doesn't have the same flavor yeah it doesn't give you that added layer of flavor to things so when i've got a dry brine that i use for smoking all my fish maple sugar kosher salt uh sumac berries and a little bit of juniper and you're golden it's oh. the best dry rub you put it on your lake trout you you're smoke speaking them. my language oh, I, I like I, your stuff yeah that's what we do <laughs> uh but yeah maple sugar i put it in my breads i put it in everything uh it's a completely different thing have you cured egg yolks not yet okay so kosher salt that? yeah kosher salt and maple sugar uh and just like a little bit of time uh and then cure your egg yolks in that time the herb the or herb. the time. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering the same thing. Because it does yeah. take time. Well, it takes two cure. weeks. Yeah. yeah. Depending on what your uh, eggs you're using. Okay. Uh, I've been getting a lot of goose eggs lately, and yolks from gooses are enormous. Yep. So a little longer. It takes, still, I leave them in the salt for a week, but then I dry them for another two weeks, where a regular duck egg or a chicken egg will only dry for a week. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely on the list of things to try. But I didn't. I've not experimented a whole lot with maple sugar yet. It was the first year I've made it. You know, I've done I've tap trees for syrup before yeah. um, for many years, but never taken that next step into making sugar. Not sure why, because it's super easy. So, so yeah, so talk about that a little bit. So, you, uh, this spring, did you tap trees on your property? Yeah. Okay, cool. And how much How much did you get? Uh, oof. I'm not sure, actually... My husband is still boiling currently, is probably he? while we speak. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it re- really, he's been heading it up this year. Uh, I've been super busy, and he, for some reason, just like caught the bug and just dove real deep into it. Awesome. And we have a neighbor. Well, we have uh, uh, two neighbors. Uh, they used to run like a commercial maple syrup operation and they got out of the game like two years ago but they're really looking to like they've been looking to like pass it on to their kids or whatever and they're not into it so they had they gave us their evaporation table wow um so that really like that's great stepped up our capacity you know what i mean so we were able to put in 55 taps as opposed to like the most i've ever done before i think it's probably like 30 okay um so, so expl- I would say we're probably pushing five gallons of finished syrup right okay. now, which, you know, for a commercial operation is nothing, but yeah. for a home operation is quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So explain the, uh, the process of making the sugar. What did you, what did you do? You just take your syrup and you heat it up to like 252 mm-hmm. and then you stir like a madman. Yeah, that's right. I, I saw just stir, in the stir, video. Stir, yeah. stir, yeah. stir, yeah. stir, just, stir, just stir, stir. And then yeah. it just happens. All of a sudden, I'm not really sure what that process is or like what that point is, but there's definitely a threshold that you cross where you're like, oh, it's happening right now. It's like magic. And then all of a sudden, it's sugar. You know, it just, it's <laughs> just so the water easy. water content's just gone out. Yeah. It's just boiled out enough to where boom, yeah. at that point. Are you familiar with uh, the chef from Canada, Martin Picard? I heard the name, not okay. real familiar. He has no. a, a book, uh, Cabane Souk, uh, which is his sugar shack. He's got his own little sugar shack out in the middle of nowhere in Canada. He puts out hundreds and hundreds of gallons of sugar. In there, he breaks it down. And with maple syrup, uh, about every three or four degrees, it changes consistency. Yeah. 
So you boil it mm-hmm. to be syrup, it's like 219. Uh, at 222, yeah. it becomes sort of a uh, syrup, uh, Thick. thicker, thicker syrup. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at 227, it becomes kind of like a toffee. Uh, and then it goes through these various stages. Like the candy stages. Yeah, the candy the- stages okay. until it gets past that. Yeah. But yeah, the longer you boil it, the less water is in it. It heats up higher, and at each heat level, it turns different consistency it's fun to watch yeah it's fun to play around with too i'll have to get that video and i'll put it on the show note page of uh of of the sugar coven that was the sped up version too i sat there and videoed it while my husband was stirring the video was probably like five minutes long but i sped it up and shortened it to like a couple seconds ago my people aren't gonna watch this whole thing (laughs) but uh, it's really cool to see in person though yeah yeah cool so um so you talked a little bit about, you know, as, as a kid, um, your mom making that poultice and, and really understanding sort of what benefits plants can offer. Um, you then made a decision to really focus on, on, on being a for- forager primarily, right? Before you, you, had, you didn't really hunt or fish when you were forager, right? No. No. So that was Yeah, the foraging trade. came first. Okay, okay. And, and was that... Um, all kinds of things. You forage mushrooms, you foraging berries, you foraging plants. Everything. Everything. Yeah. Anything and everything. I definitely don't specialize in mushrooms. I'm not a mycologist. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, I'm comfortable with the mushrooms that I do know. Yeah. Uh, but what I definitely favorites? specialize in vascular plants. Um, my favorites. Oh, uh, whatever's in season. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, we, I mean, in Maine, I, and really my knowledge is very regionally isolated so i don't even know what you guys are dealing with in minnesota but um for us you know we've got um chanterelles black trumpets chicken of the woods hen Mm -hmm. of the woods um bull eats um a lot of the same ones yeah 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 i would imagine there's a lot of overlap definitely but depending on the season i mean they're all the same yeah yeah so um what do you enjoy the most about foraging? <laughs> That's an impossible question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you really just sprung that on me. Well, given that you're at 10% capacity, I figured I'd really throw a very obtuse odd one out. Yeah, it's probably a good time for it. Maybe I'll learn something about myself. Um, my favorite thing about foraging, I think it just feels good. It feels, I, it feels like a natural easy fit i mean i i think to do it commercially like i do it is not for everyone but to to just try it and maybe engage in it a couple times i think is going to appeal to almost everyone you know what i mean because it is biologically like evolutionarily it's what we're kind of built to do yeah and so um yeah it just it just feels like a very good and natural fit for me as a human you know what i yeah. mean so you, you mentioned the commercial side of it um so yeah you do these uh you don't call them csas what do you call them csf csf i only did it for one year okay i'm not doing it any longer okay L- too much work not enough money it was very labor intensive yeah i bet um i think it's a good idea and so i hope somebody it. else does it yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it's it easier to do in a group. Yeah, get six or seven people out there looking, and then oh yeah, supply. Yeah, mostly it was the processing, 
and like washing, weighing, mm. bagging, and then coordinating with your CSF members as far as like pickup and you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I can imagine. It I, was I a mean, lot, a lot of moving parts. So like, I gave it a trial run for a year and yeah. it was good. And I think people enjoyed it and I could have done a better job. And I really do think that it's a, it's a good, it's a good thing for somebody to do, but it's not something that I'm equipped to do right now. Yeah. So what, um, what would you put in the mix and, and was it weekly or bi-weekly? Yeah, okay. Weekly. Week. And what, what, what types of, did you have greens and then if seasonally based, you maybe had berries and, yep. and or mushrooms or what, what did, yeah, you know? it totally, okay. I mean, the season dictates everything. Yeah. Um, so I didn't even do it for the whole year. So they didn't get the, they didn't get the early spring. Um, so they probably started with late spring, early summer. So we were heavy into greens and then that moved into greens, flowers, and then flowers, fruit, and then fruit, nuts, and then nuts and roots, mm. and then like evergreens. And So what, 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 uh, what were the nuts that, uh, that you did usually? Uh, acorns, shagbark hickory. Okay. Um, shagbark hickory. Yeah. Some chestnuts. That was probably it for nuts. Okay. Okay. Oh, very cool. Ever do black walnuts? Yeah. Okay. I didn't offer them for the CSF, but I do. Okay. Okay. I do collect them. I've got like eight black walnut trees in my yard. Ooh, yeah. that's nice. Yeah. So I, uh, a lot of people hate them. Oh, yeah. If they're not utilizing oh, them, they're gosh. a real There's, mess. Oh, they're a complete mess. Absolutely. Like landscaper's nightmare. Yeah. With the kids, I, when, our, when our kids were young, I, I uh, harvested one year and uh, I haven't done it since, but I, I need to do that. I'd love to, love to do it. It's fascinating just in terms of, did you know like the, the Constitution, the United States Constitution is written in, in black walnut ink? I didn't. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes you, really good ink. It though. makes great ink. I mean, it like, turns everything black. Oh my gosh. If you pick those things up, like I, the first the first time I did it, I just picked them up with my hands without rubber gloves. Don't yeah. ever do that. Your no. hands get stained so bad. It's, For it a good long time, yeah. What did you do with your black walnuts? So I dried them and um, ate some of them. I, I roasted some of them. I did not get to the point of where what I wanted to do is I wanted to salt them and just try try some different things and put them in some dishes. To be honest, I, I didn't quite get that far, and that's where I, I did it halfway. And so... Uh, this uh, this this fall, let's let's do it. And what do you do with yours? I sell them. You sell them. You don't <laughs> you don't cook them or eat them. I do. Um, I haven't. I haven't in the last couple of years. I don't have a. I don't have a whole abundance of them. You know what I mean. I only have a few spots, and it's a pretty limited harvest. And I have um, a couple of my customers who really really want them, like more than I want them. So. Um, I haven't kept a whole lot of them for myself. Okay. You do black walnuts? Yeah. Yeah? What do you do with yeah. them? Yeah. Uh, there's a fine Italian liqueur called Nocino. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You made it? <laughs> yeah. How do you make it? It's just grain alcohol and walnuts, and you soak them for a long period of time, and then you filter it. Is it the nut or the husk? The, both. Yeah. The whole thing? The whole thing, yeah. Huh. You get everything in there. Uh, and then the Nocino, you get everything out of it. Uh, and it's delicious. <laughs> I bet. I mean, um, the flavor and the no, aroma uh, in those husks. Un, unroasted black walnuts also uh, can be a little bitter. Yeah. Uh, and if you yes. try, <laughs> you can make uh, your own bitters, a craft bitter out of the black walnut. Yeah. Uh, add whatever flavors you want I've to I've had customers that. do that, and yeah. I have tasted it. <clears throat> yeah, it's delicious. Loved it. it. Makes a hell of a Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
We're going to do that this fall. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so who's buying? When you had the CSF, who's... Uh, all people from all over like i think he i think i remember you and i haven't talked about this but i seem to recall um that you are foraging you've got some chefs yeah that locally in the main area or different places who are who are uh, buying your foraged items um well when i first started selling okay well the whole progression of like the sales aspect yeah. of it started out with a small farmer's market. This is when I was living in Down East. Is this legal? (laughs) (laughs) Most of it. Okay. Okay. So anyways, continue. Depends on who's listening. Um, I'm going to skip over that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, so farmer's market. It's ethical and safe. Absolutely. It largely like, as far from a regulatory standpoint, it's kind of like the Wild West. Yeah. So it's not that I'm breaking any laws; is that there aren't right any laws. You know right. what I mean? Exactly. Um, directly applying to what I'm doing, and so does that apply for mushrooms as well? Uh, no, mushrooms are they're paying more attention to mushrooms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and making laws specifically for them, and that's helpful, honestly. Like I'm not opposed to that. Um, they're just not there for what I'm doing. And so I do my best. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you started with farmer's market. Down yeah, East? I started with a farmer's market in down East. Um, and then from there started selling direct to chefs across the country. Um, there were no local restaurants where I was living at that point. Um, so I didn't really have the option to be selling locally. Otherwise I would have, um, and then when I moved back to Southern Maine, I was in like the, right on the Southern Maine, New Hampshire border on the seacoast. Uh, there's a ton of local restaurants like Portsmouth, New Hampshire is just like restaurant central. Um, and they really welcomed me back with open arms um, and they were into what I was doing. And so uh, for a few years, the majority of my business, it totally shifted from like everything being shipped nationwide and then shifted to everything being sold locally Hmm. um and now i'm leaning more towards teaching rather than selling and so i've held on to a couple larger accounts that um that are more worth my while like dealing with the restaurants it was it was great um but definitely a hustle as far as like um really labor intensive and travel intensive they want small quantities of like very specific things and not a lot of notice you know what i mean right right. um so i found that dealing with breweries is actually Hmm. it's a good pace for me because they'll order large quantities on like a kind of they have a regular brew schedule and uh, you know so what what are the breweries asking for Oh, everything. The actually, I'm only. I've narrowed my accounts down to only like two, currently, and then the rest. I'm really leaning into the teaching right now. Okay. And so the accounts that I've held on to, one is a brewery in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, called Earth Eagle Brewings, and they kind of specialize in gruets, which is beers brewed without hops. 
Mm. Um, so they're using more like primitive or colonial methods of brewing using herbs as their bittering agent rather than hops. And so it's a perfect pairing for wow. me because a lot of the things that I'm gathering are, you know, traditionally used in that manner. Uh, and they're really well suited for that purpose. Cool. Yeah. It's really cool. So, um, and then my other account that I've held on to is a meadery. They make mead. Okay. And they're pretty much doing the same thing. Huh. That's I, I was not aware of the uh, of the breweries that are are going without hops to that more traditional colonial method. That's pretty neat. Yeah, it's becoming a thing. Earth Eagle, I would say, um, they were they were ahead of they were ahead of the curve there. It's definitely like I don't know if it's peaking in popularity right now, but Gruets are definitely a thing right now. Like hmm. it's hip. <laughs> uh, so I'm glad to be a part of it. It's good for business ago, at least. Uh, Summit. Yeah. In Minnesota, did a spruce tip. Oh, they did. Beer. Okay. Yeah, spruce yeah. is big. Yeah, spruce is one of the oldest colonial beers. That was probably the first beer I ever brewed. It's just spruce tips. Yeah, spruce tips, great. I love it. Yeah. So, um, invasives. Yeah. Do you do you? Um, what are your thoughts on invasives? Whether it's garlic mustard or or what? Uh, do you do you harvest them? And yeah, yeah. Okay. I do. I try to. I try to focus on them and you know promote the use of them as much as i possibly can how about like you know i know one thing you know from a foraging standpoint and i myself have not done a lot of of aspects of i always think it's interesting to think about um like for urban or suburban environments of just classic weeds are there they're the best yeah they're my favorites honestly so to talk about that because that's one thing that i'd I'd love people to hear is is that aspect of so like how what where when you know well that's a lot but um yeah uh, it's a good place for people to start because everybody has weeds right like everybody has weeds unless you just round up the heck out of your yard right yeah that's <laughs> an issue exactly uh, in the promotion of eating weeds is a lot of places have been sprayed sure and so you want to avoid those spots and that's tough to do especially in an urban environment when they're doing like municipal grade uh spraying right. of things so that's something to be aware of for sure but you know in your urban environments a lot of times that's like the only quote-unquote wild food that you have access to are your weeds and so if it's not being sprayed like (laughs) there are some people that may not think that foraging in an urban environment is is a good idea just because you know it's you're probably going to be close to a road or the septic tank or something like that but if you have no other option you know what i mean and then you look at what are your other options? Like the the closest farm is who knows how far away. You know what I mean? So like you pick and choose your battles and the plants are maybe not growing in an ideal location, but still, still maybe nutritionally superior to something that you're going to be buying in your grocery store. So, so uh, I, I, I'm in favor of it. Yeah. So, so a, a, a common weed nutritionally superior to oh, yeah. like your mixed your mixed greens. Yeah, I have a lot of farmer friends that hate me for this, but it's true, man. <laughs> Science proves it. Yeah. I'm not making up facts, you know what I mean? Uh yeah, they're very very nutritionally superior. I mean, 
I, I can't quote to you like the nutrient densities and things like that off the top of my head. Um, I have read them. I am aware of them. I, I believe that it's true. I know that it's true. Um, but if you just look at it from the standpoint of like, okay, this plant has had to thrive without any help from anything. You know what I mean? And that, that means, <laughs> well, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. You know, you're not, you're not babying it. If you're babying, like I It's a gro- strong living. Yes. Living, I grow yeah. vegetables in my vegetable garden. Love them. But you can see that they're, they're weaker. You know what I mean? Yeah. They need your help. Mm-hmm. Whereas the weeds don't. Mm-hmm. And you know, that chemically it's also the same hmm. thing. Like they're vigorous. They're vibrant. Um, they stand on their own. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, so it's kind of like it, 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 folds nicely into uh something that i believe that like you are what you eat Mm -hmm. and so you just kind of like look at well do i want to be this or do i want to be that you know what i mean and being strong right and you look at the science behind it and it does back it up Hmm. so um given this forging lifestyle that you've uh, embarked upon and been on your your entire life, really. Talk a little bit about, though, I guess, homesteading. Like, what is your your lifestyle now? You're off the grid. You live out in the the deep woods? No, Uh, it's it's not super rural where I am right now. Okay. Um, I mean, it's not not near any city. We have small rural towns around us. I mean, I can hear the neighbor's dog barking. I'm not that far from people but we we got a good chunk of land um at a good price and it's far enough away from things where we feel like we have some privacy but it's Mm -hmm. close enough to conveniences where it's not a super pain in the ass yeah so are you foraging most of the time like a typical week you know are you out every few days are you out as much as you can be and yeah spring through fall okay winter time is kind of <laughs> what do you do in the winter time yeah <laughs> uh do you have anything to forage in the winter yeah is there trees any? yeah that's about it trees and you know evergreens there's wintergreen and juniper and yeah. uh aromatic shrubs where you know some of the flavors are held in the wood or in the cambium um but yeah, business definitely slows way down in the winter yeah, months. Yeah. So I help out at a at a local bean farm in the winter time. He okay. grows um, heirloom dry beans. It's actually at a farm that was like, it's in southern Maine. It's right around the corner from the farm I grew up on, and like we used to, uh, <laughs> old Mister Webster's farm is what we call it, uh, Lovers Brook Farm. Um, we used to take field trips there as in like kindergarten yeah. you know what i mean go look at the pigs and the chickens and stuff and my grandmother my great grandmother rather used to uh come over and trade mr webster 
eggs for chicken uh eggs for milk and uh so it's it's kind of i don't know it's it's nice to be in a place that i have a little history with it's it's mindless work for me uh so it's kind of a nice seasonal break because like running a business is taxing mentally uh so it's kind of meditative you know what i mean like he tells me what to do i do it i get a paycheck and i do take foraging orders in the winter time but they're pretty sparse but yeah um spring through fall um i'm probably foraging four or five days a week and i'll do deliveries and then work on the house or the land how much are you foraging on your own property versus outside of there like quite a bit actually yeah Yeah, it's real nice yeah (laughs) super nice um you know that varies depending on what i have orders for yeah but uh, quite a bit cool so when did you uh when did you start hunting uh I started hunting when I was homesteading in Down East. Um, what was the impetus for it, and how'd you how'd you get into it? Somebody said, "Hey, come on out with me." Or well, the guy that I was with then, he had always been a hunter, not not a big time hunter, but it had always been like a part of his life. He had an uncle, Uncle Ted. Uncle Ted is like fanatical hunter, like biggest hunter I've ever met, and. I think Uncle Ted was actually, um, I was never opposed to hunting. I was understood it as a a concept that I agreed with, uh, but I didn't know if I had it in me. Um, And then, I don't know, Uncle Ted kind of, he would come back from hunting and they they never killed anything. <laughs> but he would... <laughs> no, well, Uncle Ted would kill things on his other hunting trips, but he would come up to hunt deer in Down East Maine. And given there's not a lot of deer there, it's just, it, nobody kills a lot of deer in Down East Maine. So, sorry, Uncle Ted. You're a great hunter. But, you know, he would come back, and what he would be talking about is, oh, I saw this bird... Or I took a nap under this tree. I had such a good time. I was like, oh, that sounds really nice. <laughs> you know? Um, and I think so. He was the one that really kind of made me really start examining that weird dichotomy of, like, killing things that you love. Like, he made me realize that he loves these things right but he also is killing them it's the, it's the hardest thing not, i think for people to understand it's hard still for me to understand yeah. and i know wholeheartedly that it's true yeah that like i know in myself and lots every other hunter that i meet they love these things you know what i mean um and i still don't know how to explain it to myself even yeah and not even close to being able to explain it to other people working on it but. No, absolutely. I think I think it's the it's it's the thing that most people who don't who haven't hunted when you try to explain that you really can't. And like you just said, um, I remember somebody saying once that it, 
if they ever get to the point of where they don't feel conflicted after killing an animal, they know it's time to stop hunting. Because, and, and I remember this person who, had, who said it, you know, they'd been hunting 30, 40 years and, and said they still have a very tough time with that. And, but that's just part of the, part of the process. Yeah. And, uh, and you can't really explain it because no. it's, 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 uh, it, it is a, it's, there's an irony there that it's, it's, uh, it's just, it's challenging. But, yeah. So do you, um, so what do you hunt? Now, you, do you hunt whatever's, in, whatever's season. in season? Yeah, yeah that's great. Same with foraging. You know? Yeah. If I can eat it, I'm going after it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are you doing birds? Are you ever you ever go out Trying. to do like, yeah? A dog would help. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> A lot. Yeah. <laughs> you hunt squirrels? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah. A lot of squirrels. What do you do with your squirrels? How do I cook them? Yeah. Um, well, chicken fried or a stew or over the campfire, stuffed with herbs and wild fruits or whatever. Mm-hmm. I like to brine them, yeah. uh, age them in the fridge a couple days. Um, what else do I do with them? You know, i got to say, n- nothing really beats over the fire. Nothing really beats meat <laughs> over a fire. Okay. It's hard to top that. Now, I will just offer a suggestion uh, about the same time that you're out there shooting them squirrels those hens of the woods will be out there oh yeah uh if you throw them together and make a stroganoff uh, (laughs) that's a good idea i know (laughs) (laughs) that's a really good idea oh my god stroganoff is like my yeah ultimate the nice thing about a stroganoff and when you do it with squirrels you take two or three squirrels depending on the size and you know stew them down with stock and peel the meat off and then cook your stroganoff with the already cooked meat and then you've got your stock with the squirrel and then you throw the mushrooms in there and you really just you can't go wrong with that oh my god and if you want to take it a step further you know take your nettles uh, make your uh, nettle pasta uh, serve your stroganoff over a nettle noodle and you're good to go <laughs> I can't wait <laughs> I just can't wait <laughs> It's so long till squirrel season oh, right now <laughs> it, is. It's, it seems like an eternity away uh, I don't have but, any in the freezer But the great thing about that is You know, you, you put a meal together like that And that's one of those aspects of foraging That I think I enjoy the most Is I can go out and forage but I can pair that with a deer or a rabbit or a duck or whatever else that I've gotten. And on very rare occasions, you can put together an entire meal of things that you got yourself. Your it own doesn't hands. have to be rare. No. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about like a completely, a complete dish yeah. uh, that you can put together yeah. without needing... You know, flour or cream or something oh, else. Oh, that's tough. You know, just the a flour ho- is hard. Right, just a whole meal that you could put together by yourself with things that you went out into the woods and you got, or maybe you grew them in your garden. Uh, it's when, the best. Yeah, when I can put a meal on a table uh, that I didn't have to buy anything, uh, I, I do. I celebrate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> rightly so. It's a good feeling. It's yeah. like the best feeling. I enjoy it a whole lot. So what was the hardest thing about hunting, getting into it? Uh, I 
I mean, just getting used to killing things. Yeah. You know? Um, I mean, there are other hurdles, of course, like familiarizing yourself with firearms and had you ever had you ever shot guns before um i mean we had a 22 around because we kept chickens yeah so predators a little bit yeah so a little bit of background but not much not much no yeah um but yeah i think i think the hardest thing yeah, just getting used to killing things. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a kind of, it's it's on the one hand it's strange, on the other hand it's not. On the one hand meaning like f- in my individual lifetime it was strange because I'd not done it before, but then you do it and you kind of realize that like okay, this is how people live. This is how people have always lived. It does make sense on some sort of cellular level. Yeah. What uh, was the first thing you killed? Squirrel. Okay. How'd you feel about that? Oh, I cried. And then the gutting and skinning, I almost passed out. <laughs> 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 I could do it in my sleep now, but yeah, the first time was I did, I had to sit down. It was, it's a heck of a process. Yeah, mm-hmm. to see the insides of a mammal, especially. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I had yeah. fished uh, not a whole lot, but, you know, I, I like to fish. say that I value all yes. creatures equally, but I don't because no. I'm a mammal. <laughs> that's exactly that's so, exact. Squirrels are one of my favorite things on the earth. Me too, uh, man. I, I love hunting them. I love cooking them. I was them. eyeballing them in the park yeah, today. Exactly. <laughs> uh, what method do you use for cleaning a squirrel? For cleaning? Yeah. Skinning and gutting. Peel, just peel it off like a sweater. Okay. How do you do it? Well, there's a few different uh, philosophies to it. Oh, I like to <laughs> slice it across the anus, step okay. on the tail, pull the... Pull, yeah, okay. Pull it off. Yep, and that gets, well, 80% of the skin all in one shot. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then just twist off the feet and the head yep. and the... And, uh... What do you have a better way? No, not really. Because I, I uh, take it. I'm, I'm partial to just making one incision all Across. the way around the belly. Yeah, uh, around the belly, over the back, and then just pulling different directions, uh, and it, everything comes off, and you end up with a whole squirrel. And if you shoot them correctly uh, in the head, yeah, yeah. Uh, then you don't lose anything, and everything's intact. And then you just make a simple incision from the anus up to the breastbone, pull everything out, save the heart, liver, and. Anything else that you want to throw in something else? So you make a hor- your first cut is a horizontal cut across the abdomen. Yeah, around, completely circumferent. And then you pull from where? Right on the backbone. Take your fingers right underneath the skin and pull in both directions, and everything comes oh, right off. Oh, the arms and legs out to the side. Yep. Okay. Killing me, man! <laughs> I, just, I can't wait for season. No, I just I, I pull, and then you know, once you pull, everything comes off, and then the head and the feet are all up, and it's like you pull the sweater off the top and pants off the bottom. Yeah, and then all you got to do is clip inside, uh, and clip the ankles, clip the tail, clip the head, clip the shoulders. Uh, everything comes off, and I've found that that method uh, eliminates most of the hair. 
I like that. Yeah. Uh, another little tip, take those squirrels and just dip them in lukewarm water before you do it, and none of the hair will stick to the skin. Oh, my God. Why yeah. have I not done that before? Yeah. It's <laughs> And this episode of Squirrel Hunting <laughs> has been brought to you by... I know. Hey, it's, man, if I there was a squirrel hunting podcast... There, is, there are elk in this world, there are antelope in this world, and there are delicious beasts that I can't wait to eat. But squirrels, for whatever reason, they're just... I love squirrels. I do, too. Yeah. A lot. You know what's funny is, I was this last fall, I was going to go out go out squirrel hunting and uh take my son out and and just never got around to it and I, I need to this fall because i haven't shot a squirrel since i was a kid really yeah i just it's the it, best I, it makes you feel like a kid i think right. that's part of what i love about right it. exactly you know you're out there with your 22 <laughs> yes <laughs> yes it's like a toy <laughs> but i think I've heard a lot of this on a lot of podcasts lately that uh, a lot of hunters aren't introduced to hunting the way we were. Uh, I was introduced to hunting by my grandfather who gave me a twenty two and said, James, those squirrels are getting into my Martin house. Go kill them. And I did. Uh, and I shot squirrels and I shot a rabbit and I worked my way up the scale. Yeah. Uh, today, it seems like there's a lot of people out there. The first, I mean, I've talked to kids, 10, 12 years old. First thing they killed was a 12-point buck. And when that happens, I, I often wonder, you just shot a 12-point buck. I'm 43 years old. I've never shot a deer that big in my entire life. You just ruined the rest of your life. Yeah, because man, it's you all started, <laughs> You started by killing the biggest thing you could. Yeah. Uh, and now you're just going to be disappointed the rest of your life. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, but squirrels for me, I just, I love going out and shooting them. It doesn't I, get old for me. No. And I do think that if you introduce people to squirrels, you can hunt squirrels two different ways. You can hunt them with a 22, you can hunt them with a shotgun and both methods are sort of similar to other things you're going to do. Yeah. If you take a shotgun out and you're just looking to flush a squirrel and shoot them while they're running, you can do that. If you go out with a 22 and you're hoping to sit still and wait and see movement, get a good shot, line it up, that's take the I shot, like. that's like deer hunting. Yeah. You know, it's just deer hunting on a smaller scale. You're going to hone a lot of skills. Yeah. And it works and you're gonna incredibly see well. It does. I still have not. Uh, I've not ever taken a squirrel with a shotgun. Yeah, no, there's really no reason to. I would. I, uh... Ooh. (laughs) He's trying to hurt me. (laughs) For the audience, Jamie is showing Jenna pictures (laughs) of a really good squirrel. Nashville-style hot squirrel that I made. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, you guys, this has been fun. And uh, I'm sure we could go on for hours and hours. Was it too squirrel heavy? No, it was great. It was great. I love it. That's where I wanted to get to the hunting level. Uh, you know, talk about the foraging aspect of it. But I love the the standpoint of you really growing up with that, and then and then coming into the hunt into the hunting side of things. So, uh, Jenna, thank you so much. Thanks Mark, for having me. Before Jamie. we end, yes, can I ask? My favorite thing to forage in this entire world uh, is ramps. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love them. You're not alone. <laughs> what it's kind you, of a problem, actually. What, what do you Everybody like to do wants with, them. Yeah, what do you like to do with them? Oh, jeez. I like them pickled. Oh, yeah. I like a compound butter. Yep. That's a good way to, like, 
extend the use because it doesn't take a whole lot of RAM. No, it doesn't. They are so full of flavor. You can pack like a pound of butter with just a couple leaves. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, those are probably my favorite. I like to include them in like a like a spring wild green pesto. Mm-hmm. Um, I make like throughout the season different batches of uh wild green pestos depending on what's in season but anything that has the ramps in it is definitely yes. above a, and beyond yeah so i don't know if you've ever tried it but take those pickled ramps yeah dice them up mix them in with some mayonnaise and make tartar sauce <sighs> and then use that on your fish <laughs> or your squirrel or your squirrel if you're into it <laughs> i'm into it <laughs> <laughs> That's a pro tip. Yeah. You I wanna, like it. You want to do that uh, ramp pesto uh, recipe? Do you have a recipe for it that uh, we could put on? Don't have. A, I probably make one up. I don't normally use recipes. I just kind of pack just it all throw in. throw it all together, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, I could write something up okay. if you want cool. to put it on the yeah. website. Yeah. yeah. I mean, ramp season's right around the corner. So exactly. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. I'm I sure will people- say. If you guys are going out there harvesting ramps on your own, I don't know what the populations are like where you guys are living, but they're definitely being over harvested. Mm-hmm. Um, they're super popular and for good reason because they're delicious. Um, but leave a few. At least where I am, don't dig them. Don't dig them. Right. Just yeah. cut a leaf. Right. Exactly. Just cut one leaf per plant. It's plenty of flavor. Yeah. You don't yeah. need that bulb. Yeah. Um. So, I just have to say that. That's a really good point. I won't preach on it, but no, no, absolutely, it's important. Be conscious because you're not the only one out there taking them. You know. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> well, thanks. Thanks, Mark. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Mark. So I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Jamie Carlson and Jenna Roselle. Remember to know what you're looking for in the forest before you start foraging and collecting items that you're going to eat and share with others. Uh, Go to the show notes page at modcarn.com forward slash podcast nine. That is podcast and the number nine for more information and related links and have fun out there. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com. 